This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios right here in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in today for Mike Simpson. And of course, as we do every single day, we talk about the latest developments that we all need to know about the coronavirus pandemic. Up first, the FDA says blood plasma treatment was saving lives. Our president called it tremendous news. The FDA, though, got criticized later over misrepresenting the data and pulled back on its earlier statement. Then the CDC came out and said it's no longer recommending people get tested for the virus if they're asymptomatic. Now it's walking that statement back. Kind of. So can we trust government agencies to tell us the truth? Well, do you remember uh, when we were all growing up, uh, if the FDA said something about a drug or the CDC said something about a disease, you could take it to the bank and... Well, when we were growing up, they said, don't trust anybody over 30. (laughs) So it's hard to say. But... Can we trust them? Let's find out. A cheap and quick virus test, by the way, is now being mass produced that millions of people, they could get. But here's the here's the key question, though. How reliable is a cheap and quick test going to really be? You know, I've I've learned a long time ago. Cheap doesn't equate to good. Yes. You know, my father didn't believe that. But I've learned over time. I once bought a cheap used car. Was it a lemon? <laughs> Let me tell you about that yeah, one. <laughs> usually cheap and good don't go no. in the same you know, sentence very well. Some people get over the virus quickly. Some just don't. And those who don't need long-term help and care. We'll look into how one clinic is helping those who can't get back to full health. If we want the economy to get back to the pre-pandemic normal, we're all going to have to feel better about spending money. Why? Wait, why do I want to feel better about spending? I don't want to spend money. Yeah, I never feel good about spending money. No, I want to save everything. Ask my wife. I never feel good about spending money. Yeah. But let's get back to why federal health agencies keep changing their positions. Arthur Kaplan is the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. He talked to you, Charles, and Chris Seedens about why so many flip-flops and confusing advice. I think three and a half years of this administration, and I don't mean to be... Uh, heavy political, but the administration has set out to debunk science, to uh, undermine medical advice. You know, they do see the FDA, the NIH, CDC, Surgeon General as part of the deep state. Uh, Trump, President Trump tweeted that a few days ago, that the deep state shouldn't get in the way. And, you know, they've been after science from the moment they came in. Remember, it's it's been under attack on the climate issues and the global warming issues. And I think the COVID pandemic, we've seen a continuation of the attempt to uh, take away the standing of science. From an ethics standpoint, how do you feel? How did, how did it hit you when you heard agencies like the CDC and the FDA appearing to give in to political pressure from government leaders to make such statements with knowing that we have tens of thousands of people dead? Well, it's tragic because no one ever defeated a virus with a political speech. Science, medicine have worked us through polio, smallpox, uh, many, many other plagues, and they're our, our best hope to get out of this one. So you can be ideological, you can be political all you want, but when the NIH director, uh, excuse me, the uh, head of the infectious disease unit at the NIH, Tony Fauci, uh, is not consulted, and a policy comes out when he's unavailable, when the CDC head Redfield uh, sheepishly has to admit that uh, the policy about don't test people unless they're showing symptoms makes no sense, 
when the FDA guy comes out and says there's a 35% cure rate with this thing, which is completely bogus, unestablished, and wrong, you just want to uh, shake your head and say, we're never going to get out of this uh, epidemic if we continue to uh, politicize uh, our, our best hope of uh, getting the truth. Which conveniently brings me to a possible vaccine. So when that day comes, if that day comes, when one of these agencies or both were to announce a successful, uh, effective, safe vaccine, how do we believe them? I'm worried that we're going to see an October surprise that the White House will say, there's enough evidence in, we got a vaccine, we promised you a vaccine, things are great, vote for me. That's basically the timing we saw with the blood plasma announcement right before the convention. I don't think we can believe them, and here's what I think we need to do. Beyond the scientists, we need an independent commission, trustworthy public figures, bipartisan, to look at the same evidence and say, we agree, the vaccine is ready. If we don't have some independent corroboration, at this point, I think FDA... NIH, CDC, our government scientists are so damaged that people are not going to credit what they say. So your advice to, to the White House, be it Republican or Democrat, say uh, January comes around, how, how to handle something as dangerous as this pandemic? Are people right when they say lawmakers should basically just shut up and get out of the way? I believe that, and I'll tell you why. We could be done with this thing if we increase testing, not decreased it, as Trump keeps arguing. If we quarantine the people who are infected, the rest of us could wander around. We wear our masks. We try to be uh, socially distant. We could make this thing go away. We could beat it. We haven't done it because we've let politicians tell us what to do, not public health people. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. Abbott got the go-ahead to start producing a $5 rapid COVID test. It could be distributed to millions of people at doctor's offices, schools, and even at your workplace. Will they be accurate? Now, that's the key question, of course. So Dr. Blythe Adamson is an economist and epidemiologist at the University of Washington, also an advisor to the nonprofit group Testing for America. Chris Edens and I asked her about just how accurate these tests might be. Oh, well, you know, this, let's remember, this is really intended for people who are showing symptoms. So this is not the big asymptomatic screen that, um, you know, we're still waiting for. But, the, you know, it's got pretty good sensitivity, uh, 97% in the first seven days after symptom onset, and specificity of 98%, you know, means that that two out of every hundred people that they test that are truly negative will show up as a false positive. Now, am I correct? This is a uh, this doesn't test for the virus itself. It tests for the uh, a protein particle, the, the antigen on the virus. Is that right? That's correct. So the antigen test is what allows us to use this lateral flow technology. That's the allows it to be ready within 15 minutes. All right. So, isn't so it's that, this one's testing for nucleocapsid, not the spike protein. Okay. So isn't that kind of, I don't know if it's the same company, but isn't that sort of what happened, though, with the, uh, Chris, I'm, help me out. It was the governor of, was it Ohio, who tested? Uh, oh, right. Yes, uh, DeWine. Yes. That's right. Who tested first. Had, with the, an, had the positive test. Had a positive when he was with the, on with an with antigen. The, uh, yeah. Right, on an antigen test. And then when he had the so-called gold standard PCR test, Two of them turned out he was negative. So is that one of the dangers of these quick antigen tests? Well, you know, I don't know about danger because I think it, the type of test that you use really should depend on the decision context. 
you know, in, in hospitals where you really need to know what's happening to inform clinical decision making, the gold standard PCR test is still available. But there are many times where, you know, um, imagine you're at a school and a kid in one of the classrooms all of a sudden develops symptoms during the day. You could run this test in 15 minutes, you know, in a clear waved environment and find out, you know, yes, the student does have it. You can, you know, inform this actionable decision to quarantine a classroom at a time. So there, I think the trade-offs are really what's the cost if you get a, a false negative. It's one of the reasons why you might not want to use this for screening everyone. If you've got a thousand kids in an elementary school and you just screen everyone, even if there's no positives, no true positives, you might get 20 false positives a day. And you don't want to send 20 kids home a day, you know, completely unnecessary. Is there a danger of people feeling overly confident if they take this and if it's that if it's that inaccurate? Well, I'd say the sensitivity is actually very good. So you might have a false positive, but if you've got a false positive, that might just mean that you quarantine unnecessarily. But the fact that it's pretty accurate on the sensitivity, if you're positive, um, you know, the, it, this one's really detecting more of contagiousness. And so it's more accurate in the time period when you're in that acute infection and you've got really high viral load. So I think there's a lot of potential for this to have um, very um, valuable applications in the field. Does this bring us that much closer to an at-home test, kind of like a pregnancy test, but for COVID? I believe that this does. The technology of detecting a protein instead of the virus itself really is on the pathway to an at-home test. This specific Abbott test is um, a nasal swab, so you know, just in the front part of your nose, and you administer it yourself, but under the observation of someone else. So we haven't, it's not ready yet for prime time or, um, you know, authorized by the FDA to be done at home. Okay. Dr. Blythe Adamson, uh, economist and epidemiologist at the University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Adamson, thank you. If you've been following the virus closely, you've probably heard of long haulers. Those are the people who can't shake the virus and have at least some symptoms for weeks, possibly even months. Some of them are not well enough to get back their regular lives. Dr. Lakshmi Santush talked to KCBS's Stan Bunger about how these people are being treated. I have a unique clinical seat at the table where I work in both the intensive care unit with the sickest of the sick COVID patients and on the regular hospital floors and in the outpatient clinic setting. So I've really seen a full range or a full spectrum of patients with COVID-19. Um, early on in the pandemic, when this was first starting up, our faculty group in pulmonary, that's my main area of expertise, pulmonary and intensive care unit medicine, our faculty group said, we got to start a service to help folks who are recovering from this illness and bring up to speed what we can do to help in multiple ways. So what we did is we set up this multidisciplinary clinic, just as you mentioned, where we're really harnessing the expertise, not only from our pulmonary faculty, our lung-specified faculty, but also we partner with psychiatry, mental health, geriatrics, neurology, cardiology, integrative medicine, rehab, and more, just to try to give the best care to our patients recovering from COVID-19. Um, what is the model of this clinic? What have we based it on? You know, I didn't invent this concept. This is really a well-studied or well-established model on people who have recovered from critical illness, from really severe illness. And that model is called 
post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS syndrome. And around the country, there's actually a lot of clinics focusing on this, where they really focus on a couple of different domains of people's health. And the four big domains that we focus on in our clinic, anchored in that kind of framework, are pulmonary or lung function, physical functioning, mental health functioning, and cognitive functioning. And so what we do is we kind of take a structured approach to really explore how people are doing in all those four domains through their recovery process and see what services we can connect people to to get the help that they need. Now, are, are all of the people you've seen through the clinic uh, people who came through an intensive care unit experience? That's a really good question. So we see people who are hospitalized either in the intensive care unit or in the regular hospital, not in the intensive care unit, as well as we see people who were not hospitalized but who have persistent lung symptoms, persistent pulmonary symptoms. So that's the population that we're focusing on in our clinic. And you might see that there's clinics around the country, all with different areas of focus. Some will only focus on that ICU population. Some will only focus on, uh, but we have a little bit of a broader focus where we focus on people who are hospitalized in the ICU, outside of the ICU, or people who weren't hospitalized but are still having these lung issues. Okay. Well, we have a a number of questions lined up here. I think this topic interests a lot of people, um, and sadly, there are people uh, who probably need more help than they've gotten through through the process. So the questions come into our email box at askus at kcbsradio.com, and let's see if we can start tackling them. Um, First of all, uh, here's a simple one. What percentage of COVID-19 patients wind up with these long-term symptoms? That's a really good question. And as you know, we're still learning about this illness. I'll tell you what's been published so far, which does kind of jive with our local experience. What's been published so far is basically a large case series out of Italy, which was one of the early epicenters. And that found that over 50% had people with persistent symptoms. The most common three, big three persistent symptoms to look out for were fatigue, chest pain, and shortness of breath. And that kind of drives with our local experience where we've seen a lot of people who've recovered from the acute, you know, sudden onset illness, but are still left with these persistent symptoms. This is pretty similar in some ways to people who've recovered from a serious life-threatening pneumonia from another cause. Of course, we know that there's some differences, some key differences that are kind of COVID-specific, but some of those persistent symptoms that can happen after recovery from an acute illness are similar with another kind of other kinds of severe pneumonias. So we're seeing some differences and some similarities between, you know, similar pneumonias from other causes. All right. Uh, next question. I have a family history of heart issues. I've heard there's a belief that COVID survivors will suffer from long-lasting cardiac damage and cardiovascular problems. How much of a risk am I at? How much worse could it make it if I get the virus? This is a really good question. And, you know, in my practice as a lung doctor, I see a lot of people with heart issues, lung issues, or both who ask me a variant of these questions. And what I tell them is this. Of course, we're still learning about some of the after effects, but we do know that people with heart issues and lung issues, as well as other risk factors, say diabetes, um, being obese, being overweight, having other chronic health conditions, can unfortunately place people at higher risk. There's also people who have been, like I said, young and healthy, you know, hikers, skiers, marathoners, who've also been at risk for complications thereafter. So it's really hard to predict. What I tell people is if you're healthy and young, don't have an invincibility complex about yourself, that 
you know, this virus is unpredictable. We don't know in advance who's going to develop kind of long-term symptoms and who's going to escape with just an asymptomatic case or a super mild case. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not limited just to people with heart disease or lung disease or older folks. I think that's a common myth. It can affect anybody. And so I tell people to take kind of universal precautions, which is wear a mask anytime you're outside or if you're inside with other people that are not in your immediate family unit, you know, try to maintain that physical distancing of at least six feet of space um, and take all the usual precautions because it's hard to predict who's going to be impacted. All right. That's Dr. Lakshmi Santush. She's the founder and physician faculty lead of the multidisciplinary post-COVID clinic called Optimal. This pandemic has left all of us feeling down. Many of us are stuck at home, can't go on vacation, and have had fun events canceled. None of this leaves people feeling like spending money, therefore hurting the economy. Consumer confidence and sentiment are big indicators of a healthy economy. KYW's Matt Leon talked to economics professor Benjamin Liebman about how these two things can shape the economic recovery. Consumer spending is the biggest chunk of our economy, of of GDP. It's 70% of the economy. So it really makes a huge difference on how how consumers are are feeling. And if they're feeling good, they're going to spend more. And then that's going to help the economy. And if they're feeling worried, they're going to spend less. And depending on what you foresee over the next year, that could, or even over the next five years, that could impact your spending behavior now. Even if your income is great now, if you're worried that you're going to lose your job over the next year, so you're going to you're going to rein in spending. And actually, we are doing a lot more saving now than than we were before. Even for you know people who haven't lost their jobs, they're still concerned, and that that's impacting their their consumer behavior. So, what are these numbers telling us right now overall? You talked about saving more, but are these flashing red lights? on the dashboard that say we should be worried? Are they stronger than you would anticipate? Because I think we have the stock market that's telling us one story about the economy. We have unemployment telling us another story about the economy. What are these numbers telling us about the economy? These numbers are telling us that things are not good. They are not as bad as they were in the Great Recession, at least the the, the depths of the Great Recession. So the Consumer Confidence Index, which also has five questions, two of them are asking basically about your own financial situation and currently, and and also the economy currently. And then the other other three are asking about the future, how you feel about your own financial situation in the next six months, and how do you feel about the economy over the next six months, and how do you feel about your job outlooks in the next six months. So basically, the Consumer Confidence Index is basically two out of the five questions are the present situation, and the other 60%, the other three questions are expectations over the next six months. So if you look at those numbers, and it's, it's an index, and the index was actually set in 1985 to equal 100. They set it then because the economy was neither great during that month that they established it in 1985, nor was it poor. It was sort of middle of the road. That was 100. So what they do, they ask these five questions, and then they keep track of how many people are saying things are getting better, how many people are saying things are getting worse, and how many people uh, say things are staying the same. And depending on how many people say, if more people are saying things are looking brighter in the future or looking brighter now, then the index will go up. 
But if more people are saying things are kind of staying the same, then, and then the index will stay around the same. If more people now compared to last month, and this thing comes out monthly, say things are looking worse now and looking worse in the future, then the index will fall. In February of 2020, right before the, the pandemic hit, so the index was 132.6. And then in March, it was down to 118.8, so around 119. And then by April, it had fallen all the way down to 85.7. Okay, so if you can kind of picture this, it's a drop basically within a couple months from 132 to 85 and change. And then it moved sideways in May. And then actually things started to, to improve. So by the time you get to June, it was 98. So things were looking up. You know, I think it seemed like the economy was starting to open up more and people were looking more optimistic. And then I think the second wave started to hit. Some businesses then having to close down um, and resume more social distancing. So then it, it's been falling since then from that June lift it's fallen back from, from 98 back down to, uh, to 84, 85. It's about 85 right now. 84.8 was the last reading. So that's kind of what it was when it had fallen all the way down in, in April. So we're kind of back to where we were at the worst of times. But I should say that if you compare that to in 2009, the low point, it was in the 20s. So we, we certainly have fallen nowhere near there with regard to pessimism about the economy. Certainly, I think what's also helped things from falling down so much are the things that, uh, that Congress has done, the stimulus checks and the $600 weekly employment assistance, the payroll protection program. So these have helped consumers and they've also helped businesses to, I think, remain more optimistic. And now I think, well, besides the fact that there's been the, the second wave here, there's also concern about the fact that the, in, in July, that uh, $600 a week program lapsed at the end of the July. And then the Paycheck Protection Program, which is uh, loans to small businesses, that also closed up. And then also the, the moratorium on evictions from federally backed housing that also expired in late July. So yeah, so you have not only this, the second wave, but then you also have the uh, closing of these assistance programs that, you know, I think really helped stimulate the economy and keep, kept things from getting much worse. And so, as you know, you know, we have kind of a gridlock in Congress preventing an extension of some of these programs. So we'll have to see what will happen, you know, if there is some sort of solution in Congress so that things may lift. But there's concern about what's going to happen with school in the fall and so I think that's, again, also part of the reason that it dipped back down again from the increase that it experienced in June. Several drug companies are working on vaccines. One big concern that people have, you know, aside from whether they'll actually work, is whether the vaccines are going to be safe. I mean, oh, that would be my big concern. It's like it's going to shove that needle in me. I want to make sure I'm going to be okay. Actually, I'd have to reverse those. Yeah. Safe comes first. Work comes second, because if I'm cured, but yes. my left arm falls off, that's not going to be good. Excellent point. <laughs> Moderna says that its phase one trial found the vaccine produced consistently high levels of neutralizing antibodies for older adults. Now, it says that antibody levels in people older than 55 were comparable to those seen in in younger adults. And that was one of the big concerns you may uh, uh, remember that, uh, you know, when people get COVID or they get any vaccine or disease, sometimes older people have less of an antibody response. And so that's really important. 
The company says that the vaccine is associated with a variety of issues, though, including chills, fatigue, fever, headache, muscle pain. <laughs> Doesn't sound very, very pleasant, no, but actually. most old people get those on a daily basis, so <laughs> it's okay. This is true. Uh, and the company does say that there were no serious adverse events in the doses that have been given and used in the final stage trial. You know what? At least there's some good news to end today's show on. You can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com and the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure to hit the subscribe button. 